the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Plutka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, there was a uh, attempted invasion of Venezuela this week. I can't believe you're <laughs> even dignifying it with the expression attempted well, if invasion. You, if you define uh, two boats with about uh, 30 to 40 guys on them, one of which was intercepted at the coast on the way in, an invasion, then yes, there was an attempted invasion. <laughs> like this was a operation that was masterminded, if, and I, I use the word sparingly, uh, but masterminded by a 43-year-old veteran of the special forces named Jordan Goudreau. And uh, he was a, I mean, he was a, f- a well-respected member of U.S. Special Forces, fought right. in Iraq, three fought, in Af- three bronze stars, fought in Iraq, fought in Afghanistan, was in Sadr City in, uh, in 2006. That was some tough fighting at the time. Um, and so he's a competent Special Forces guy, but he put together an operation that uh, makes the Bay of Pigs look like D-Day. <laughs> No, it really does. I mean, every day there's a little bit more information about this operation. And with each bit that dribbles out, the worse it looks. I have to say, I don't support the notion that we pay for unbelievably aggressive, specialized training for these incredible men and women who become Green Berets and Navy SEALs, for them to then leave the military and start becoming mercenaries uh, in an invasion force set up to go into a place like Venezuela. That's just, I mean, there's nothing about that that sounds like a good idea. No, there's not, except the idea of going in and forcibly removing Maduro, which would be a good idea, and the idea of forming a army of Venezuelans to do it. If it was done by the U.S., I mean, one of the things, even the Bay of Pigs was run by the CIA. This seems to have been just literally like... You know, run, run by those guys. Yeah, run by these guys and not by the CIA. In fact, there's a fascinating TikTok in the Washington Post about this whole invasion, which I recommend everybody to read. We'll but at one point, in. they were in they were in a camp in Colombia, and somebody came to them and they said, yeah, we're being backed by these all these fighters. These Venezuelan fighters were being backed by the U.S. And they were literally, they had no supplies. They had no food. They were drinking water out of the river. And this guy said to them, if you're backed by the U.S., you'd have food. It sounds like it started out with the blessing of President Guaido, who is the uh, the legitimate interim president of Venezuela, who obviously is desperate to do something to change the dynamics there and was connected with these guys, but, you know, immediately discovered that he was, you know, didn't want to deal with them. Something was wrong. Something's but I mean, But, you know, it begs the question, there was a vacuum to be filled. Right. Right. And in, I mean, in U.S. And, policy for Venezuela, and when you leave a vacuum like this and somebody's going to step in and fill it pretty badly. Well, yes. And they did. I think that, you know, what is missing in this narrative is the why. That's what you talked about. Guaido is desperate. Maduro is still in power. And I think the American people, for reasons that I've always found unfathomable, are just not as concerned about what is going on in South America as they are about what's happening in other parts of the world, even in in the part that I love the most, the Middle East. You know, if what was happening in Venezuela was happening in some Arab country, frankly, people would know a lot about it. And the reality is that what we've got in Venezuela is a nexus of Russian agents, Iranian agents, Chinese agents, Cuban agents. It's every possible bad guy. It's like an axis of evil. It is an axis (laughs) of evil. And they're all, you know, and HQ is down there. And 
the added overlay in this is drugs, you know, <laughs> where you've got terrorists because the interior minister of Venezuela is a guy who has very well-known, very well-established connections with Iran. The Venezuelans provide passports to Iranian-sponsored terrorists. But on top of all of this, you've got vast amounts of illicit cash sloshing around that's been made by selling drugs to Americans. Yeah. I don't think it's, it's actually an overlay. I think it's the underlay. I think it's the foundation of the whole thing. This is not, you know, it's not a socialist regime. It's a narco-capitalist regime. I mean, it's socialist in the way uh, it impoverishes the entire population of the country, but on the real foundation of the regime is narco-capitalism. These guys are multi-billionaires who have made money selling drugs and other nefarious criminal activities throughout the region, throughout the hemisphere and outside the hemisphere. And, you know, they're in a position where if they lose power, they lose their criminal networks. And so they are desperate to hold on to power. And all these people, I mean, the Cubans aren't in it in, out of socialist solidarity. They're in the criminal enterprise as well and making money out of it. And so I'm sure the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians, this is all about narco trafficking and narco money. Right. And, you know, I think that there was a, a hope when Guaido was recognized, and he's been recognized by a lot of countries around the world, there was a hope that this would be the beginning of the end for Maduro, and it really hasn't. Our policy is kind of in a tailspin, uh, well, in a tail drift, I guess, uh, because it, it's going nowhere, bad things are happening, and I don't really understand. So yeah, you're right, of course, into this vacuum, into this this absolute sort of mess of a foreign policy, step these keystone cops to try to execute this absolutely laughably ridiculous and ineffective coup. Let's have someone explain to us exactly how laughably ineffective this was. Roger Noriega is a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where Mark and I both find ourselves. He's our chief of, of Latin American studies. He's the former assistant secretary of state for Western Hemisphere Affairs. He's the former U.S. ambassador to the Organization of American States, the OAS. He's a former senior Capitol Hill staffer. He's a guy who's been immersed in all of these issues for many years, and he pays a lot of attention to Venezuela. He has great connections throughout Latin America, and that includes Venezuela. We're lucky to have him. Roger, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. All right. So you are our resident Venezuela expert here at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, we just had a failed invasion of Venezuela, an attempt to dethrone the Maduro regime. Uh, some are comparing it to the uh, Venezuelan Bay of Pigs. I think it was less successful than the Bay of Pigs, Mark. Is it, is it possible to be less successful than the Bay of Pigs? <laughs> I don't know. I think they were, though. Roger, what the hell happened? Uh, well, they're calling it the Bay of Piglets, uh, some are, <laughs> as, a, as a matter of fact. On May 3rd, pre-dawn, a couple of small boats landed uh, near Caracas uh, on the Caribbean coast of Venezuela. On board were several U.S. Special Forces retired, as well as about two dozen Venezuelans. Their mission was to enter Caracas, apparently, to capture Nicolas Maduro, the dictator there, uh, and supposedly uh, get him to the airport and fly him back to the United States to stand trial on indictments for narco-trafficking. Unfortunately, one of the boats didn't actually even make it to the shore because it was detected immediately by uh, coastal forces. And obviously, the mission having been infiltrated, 
uh, and detected, the uh, Venezuelan authorities were waiting uh, with their camera crews uh, to capture this ignominious attempt to, to invade Venezuela. Immediately, fingers started pointing. The interim president, Juan Guaido, accused the regime of a ruse. It wouldn't be the first time that the regime came up with some sort of a, a diversion or, or a self-coup or an attack that they used to justify crushing the opposition. In this case, it turns out that Juan Guaido's representatives and maybe him personally signed a contract in October 2019 uh, with a U.S. Special Forces veteran with the aim, his long contract with, an, with the aim of toppling the regime, training uh, several hundred forces was the original plan, and entering uh, the country uh, and then fomenting a rebellion in the country, uh, generating uh, uh, some momentum and fomenting a, an overall popular rebellion as well as rebellion within the military. The plan went terribly wrong. Guaido apparently met with the guy in last fall, but almost immediately, because they detected that he was sort of an erratic figure, they broke off communications and relations with him. Unfortunately, he kept going. Uh, and in his bid to uh, press the case and to get paid, he says in his video declarations, he went forward with this ill-fated attack. The sad part of it is that, you know, Venezuelans have a right to fight for their own freedom. And there were prominent people and some veterans and others that were part of this crew. I don't know what occurred to them uh, when they set out on that mission, but they were fighting for the country. Uh, and uh, certainly the United States and the majority of the countries in the world do not recognize the legitimacy uh, of the Maduro regime. Uh, and they might have expected uh, some kind of support from the United States intervening once they started this attack. But, of course, that never came because the United States was apparently in the dark when they set forth this plan uh, and decided to go forward, apparently in coordination with very few people on the ground and even in the with the political opposition. So, Roger, let me just ask you a few details about this, because, you know, obviously there's been a bunch of explainers in the press about what happened. And uh, the Maduro regime has obviously accused the special forces, Americans, who they arrested, of acting on behalf of the U.S. government. Secretary of State Pompeo has denied that. Are you saying that this contract got signed by the man we recognize as the legitimate leader of Venezuela in November of last year, and we didn't actually know that this was going on and didn't know that these, I, I hate to call them idiots, um, but I don't quite know what to call them, um, these gentlemen, these veterans, were actually training in Colombia? We didn't know this? Well, I don't know what we knew, and Congress will certainly be looking into this, but apparently Guaido claims that he didn't sign a document that's disputed by several people. We know that he's on videotape talking with the guy at least once in a surreptitious tape, and there were several other meetings between Guaido and this Goudreau, essentially the mercenary who was leading this effort. But Guaido apparently was either caught by surprise or thought he could get away with denying it. I think it's rather remarkable that U.S. officials weren't able to monitor the, what Guaido was up to well enough or to detect what was going on. Apparently, there was one report that the 
CIA folks try to intervene with these people and say, this is crazy, you need to call it off. And why the U.S. government thought this was a good idea or didn't have enough pull with Guaido to have him reconsider having these rogue characters involved with his government is unknown, but I, I'm sure that people will try to get to the bottom of that. One thing that fascinated me in reading the Washington Post's account of this was that this guy, uh, Goudreau, who was, by the way, I mean, three Bronze Stars combat veteran, was in Sadr City in 2006 and some of the worst fighting. I mean, he's a serious, he was a serious fighter. Uh, I don't know how serious he, he was after fighting, but uh, when he when he came back. But he was apparently, according to the Post, introduced to the Venezuelan opposition in South Florida in April 2019 by Keith Schiller, who was Trump's bodyguard. Um, and, and I, I and wish who, you all could see my face. I, yeah. I missed that little nut. Yeah. What it says the this, the hell? Washington Post says that there was a, it was at a meeting with the opposition representatives in South Florida in April 2019 that his interest began to deepen in Venezuela. Goudreau was taken to the meeting by Keith Schiller, a former longtime bodyguard for Trump who worked in the White House in 2017, according to several people familiar with the events. And it says that Schiller didn't know Goudreau before inviting him, according to a person close to Schiller, but had given his name by a mutual acquaintance. And after the meeting, the person said Schiller concluded there was no business opportunities and severed contract with him and the Venezuelans. But he was introduced to the Venezuelans by Trump's bodyguard. Yeah, it's pretty clear that Schiller uh, is looking for business the way people do when they're in the private sector. And uh, I think walked away from that meeting and didn't ever want to be involved again. I think he showed good judgment. He wasn't involved uh, much beyond that. So there was apparently, when you hear the testimony of some of these people that are being interviewed, some, a couple of Americans have been detained. They told some of the Venezuelans, well, Donald Trump's behind this. He supports this. You know, There's absolutely no evidence of that being the case. And I think Pompeo and Trump have uh, refuted this pretty effectively by saying if we were involved, it would have gone very differently. It's very clear this was not a serious military operation. There were not the resources, not the people, not the planning that would have been required or be the elements of a serious uh, undertaking. So, you know, it was basically a rogue operation that was set off initially with the support, the contract by the uh, democratically elected legitimate president of Venezuela. And uh, they lost control of the operation, and the guy just went forward without any coordination with, with any authorities. So one of the suggestions that's been made in some of the coverage is that this operation was infiltrated from the beginning. And I know that you have said, certainly to me, to others, and I know to the Trump administration as well, that the Guaido effort is completely infiltrated by... Cuban intelligence. I want to talk to you especially about the role that the Cubans are playing. Mary Anastasia O'Grady, who has a column on the Americas in the Wall Street Journal, had a very good piece. The headline really says it all, how Cuba's spies keep winning. So talk to us a little bit about A, the Cubans and this operation, and then B, the Cubans in the broader sort of opposition and then Maduro context. The Cubans have played a shadowy role in Venezuela for 30 years. After Chavez was elected in 1998, they uh, were a resource to him. And after a coup attempt against him in 2002, they essentially took over the internal security apparatus in Venezuela, where they monitored the military and Chavez's allies, 
as much as they did the opposition. And they play more than an intelligence role. They basically manage key agencies of the country, the cadastral services. If you want to go register a business, you're just as likely to run into a, a Cuban clerk. So they have a presence, probably conservatively 15,000 people on the ground. They run the internal security apparatus there. They provide uh, strategic advice to Maduro, to all of his leaders. They also are involved in some of the corruption and drug smuggling, according to uh, sources that I've talked to. And they run operations, aggressive intelligence operations against Maduro's enemies uh, in order to control uh, and contain any threat against the regime. So they play an absolutely essential role. Fidel Castro wanted to get a hold of the Venezuelan oil fields since the 50s. He was uh, ousted from the OAS in 1952 for subverting democracy in Venezuela. He wanted those oil fields. Well, he's got them now. And he has a lot of largesse from the oil industry, a trillion dollars in revenue taken in since Chavez was elected, and involvement in the corrupt looting of the Venezuelan assets, as well as the narco-trafficking using Venezuela as a platform. So it is a cash cow. And the Cubans are, you know, Maduro is essentially a Cuban agent. He was placed in the presidency. He was made vice president to Chavez before Chavez died. And he was uh, sworn in as a successor after Chavez's death was revealed. Uh, he's the Cuban figure, and, and he's their guy. And the Cubans have convinced uh, the uh, leadership of the regime that they either hang together or they hang separately. That if they hang together and maintain unity, if they do not provoke the United States per se, that they're sitting pretty. They have nothing to fear. And the, let's face it, the Cubans have been watching Uncle Sam's trigger finger for 60 years. And they know whether or not we're coming. And, and at this point, the regime, with the Cuban support, understands that, that it is uh, nothing to fear uh, from the United States. Well, to follow up on that, you mentioned that Guaido signed a contract with this guy and that later laid eyes on him and said, this guy's, I'm not dealing with him, um, is at least what the, what the Guaido camp says. Why do you think that Guaido felt the need to go out and find a private U.S. Green Beret contractor to take on the regime? And what does that say about U.S. policy? Well, it's very clear that the U.S. policymakers are not uh, willing to even offer options to the president for the use of force. I was staggered the other day when one of senior U.S. policymakers actually said, we don't favor a coup, which is extraordinarily remarkable because We've been trying to, as I could tell, foster a rebellion from within the military for three years. That's the heart of our policy because people do understand that force needs to be used to dislodge these people. Mattis, for example, refused to put any sort of plan for the use of force in Venezuela on the president's desk. And apparently no one has. I'm not even sure there's been a, an intelligence finding for us to be more aggressive because if there were an intelligence finding, I'm sure that the president's enemies on, on Capitol Hill uh, would be leaking it to the media. So we're essentially trying to leverage this criminal regime out of power uh, using politicians who are, as Danny brought up, completely infiltrated, bought off, corrupted, manipulated by uh, figures of the regime. And unfortunately, administration folks figured, well, look, these are the cards we have to play. There's a constitutional process. Guaido has been elected by the National Assembly to be interim president. 
and these are the characters that we have to work with. But unfortunately, the policy is fatally flawed because virtually every one of these political parties, these political bosses, even among the opposition, are beholden to the regime. They've been corrupted by the regime. They're essentially complicit with the regime. The day the day the Guaido set out to do something like this, I'm sure that the regime knew about it. You know, well, that seems obvious since they met them on the beach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, a year ago there was another phony coup orchestrated by a billionaire backman of the regime. The opposition bought it then, but I heard about that a month before it happened. And, and if I heard about it a month before, certainly Maduro and the Cubans and the Russians knew, knew about it three or four months before. Uh, so you're not going to be able to defeat a criminal regime whose leaders have been indicted in the United States who understand that they either hang together or they hang separately. And they, you're not going to be able to take their loot into exile. So uh, it is a, a fact that forcefully we required to dislodge that regime. And we're just going to have to wait and see how horrible it gets in terms of stability in South America and Central America and narco-trafficking and support for terrorism and losing a bulwark ally like Colombia before the United States does what, what has to be done and deals with that regime. Roger, two questions. The first one is, why has the Trump administration put all of its eggs in the Guaido basket? That seems to be a mistake. You, know, I've seen memos that you've written where you detail the figures who surround him, who are either beholden to the regime or under indictment or about to be under indictment. I don't get that. That's number one. And, you know, I mean, based on all the evidence on the ground, he certainly has not been effective. But number two is, what should we be doing? Deal with the first one quickly and then tell us what we're supposed to do. Well, as I said, the Venezuelan constitution says that the head of the National Assembly is the interim president when there's a vacancy. They declared a vacancy because Maduro was uh, deemed to be a usurper. He, he didn't hold office legally. So, voila, here's your interim president, recognized by 60 countries, Juan Guaido. That's a constitutional solution. The National Assembly is elected. By the way, I mentioned that Guaido was elected. He wasn't elected president. He was elected by, uh, as a member of the National Assembly and by the National Assembly to be the interim leader of the country. So that's the constitutional process, right? And, and we're able to make the case to the international community that he's a legitimate representative. The problem with this is from the very beginning, U.S. diplomats knew or should have known that the chieftains of these political parties, which really have almost zero following in the country per se, are bought off by cronies of the regime uh, and that they communicate almost real time on not only what they're thinking, but what other opposition leaders are thinking and what, unfortunately, the Americans are thinking. I talked to a senior U.S. official uh, six months ago who said, look, we can't do anything effectively as long as these people are involved because everything that we do or say will leak to the regime. So that is a, a Achilles heel of this process. And what we should be doing, in my opinion, frankly, we're doing an awful lot of these things. Uh, President Trump has been very clear that that regime should go, but it's a threat to the United States. And I, I think he believes that. I think, I think he, he sincerely has he's carried that thought from day to day, at least from year to year. Unfortunately, the ground game is completely incompetent. And it's not Pompeo. These are not the political appointees. The career people, the career foreign service officers 
are at the heart of this policy. It's their drinking buddies from Caracas who are at the heart of the opposition, right? And I think that, unfortunately, it's completely inadequate. They should know better. U.S. intelligence should know better. And the career people, the foreign policy establishment has dropped the ball here, and they have a learning curve as flat as the Kansas Plains. They haven't learned anything from the fact that the April 30 coup last year was a phony rebellion. On the other hand, the Department of Justice came through with these indictments against a dozen Venezuelan leaders, including Nicolas Maduro, Diosdado Cabello, the Minister of Defense, Pedro Lopez, uh, another guy, uh, Tarek Al-Assami, with uh, ties to Hezbollah and to the Iranians. So those indictments, I mean, that's a very impressive result of nearly a decade worth of work against, uh, by U.S. prosecutors against that target. You see the Treasury Department hammering away t- uh, targeted sanctions against leaders of the regime. So those folks have performed very well. I hate to say it, but where, my, where, where I think the policy is lacking is the creativity on the part of U.S. diplomats. And it's because they are absolutely allergic to the idea of the use of force. And you know what? That's a good thing. President Trump was elected to put an end to military adventures. And I think that, you know, we have to have a, uh, if we do go in, and I think we're going to have to eventually, frankly, it's going to have to be sort of a Noriega style thing, get in and get out. And that means right now, the sell-by date's over on Guaido, frankly. I mean, he's lost what was left of his credibility. He's lost over this thing. Uh, We should let this kind of political crowd, this uh, collaborationist opposition sort of fade into the background start working with new political voices, new social groups to, uh, you know, say that the U.S. is serious about making a change and changing the way business is uh, is done uh, in in Venezuela. And we're going to have to, you know, work with some of these people to come up with a transition plan to demonstrate that they can help recover the country uh, and rebuild the country. So, Roger, exit question. So you're in the Oval Office with Donald Trump and... You know that he likes very short briefings to the point. He says, what should I do in Venezuela? Give us your, like, three-point answer. Well, I would, muffled through my mask and standing six foot back, I would tell him, and, and this is really what I would say, Mr. President, you've been right about Venezuela. You're right that the Venezuelan people are great people, a lot of the people that you've met. Venezuela is a great country. It is being held hostage by criminal gangs supported by Cuba, Russia, and China, and abetted by the Iranians, and uh, used by terrorist groups and narco-traffickers to wage war, asymmetrical war against the U.S. interests. This will only get worse until we decide to solve this problem decisively. We need to use a uh, proportionate level of of, uh, strategic force against fugitives uh, from U.S. indictments, the leadership of that regime. Uh, We need to lay the groundwork for transition planning so Venezuelans are prepared to step in and run the country. And we need to have a plan to reactivate the economy, which will mean trillion dollars in contracts for U.S. Uh, businesses and jobs as we uh, reactivate the oil-rich economy in Venezuela. This will pay off uh, dividends for us, and you could probably ask the Venezuelans to pay for it. Oh, my God. Unlike the Mexicans on the wall. What a great idea. That surely will appeal to the president. Roger, thank you for laying this all out for us. We're really grateful that you were willing to take the time and do it. I still, frankly, can't believe that this happened the way it happened. It, it's like the stuff of an HBO series, not the stuff of, uh, of a sovereign nation. But I really appreciate you taking the time to explain it to us. My pleasure. 
So, Danny, I think Roger's briefing for the president at the end there was pretty good. I mean, that's that a quick summary of what we ought to be doing. I mean, and what's at stake? Yeah. I mean, that's that's also the key is, you know, what's at stake, how much money there is down there that's being wasted or worse yet, siphoned into the hands of drug lords and foreign terrorists. One of the problems is we're trying to do in Venezuela what has succeeded in some countries but won't work in Venezuela, which is you just flip the right guy and convince somebody to turn on Maduro and they'll kick him out and replace him and then we'll have, we'll be able to start over with a new government and okay some of these guys are bad but you know we do this in the Middle East all the time we've done this you know throughout history we're used to dealing with not so great guys the problem is is that then you just end up with a new figurehead for the same thing which is this narco capitalist dash socialist regime what we really need to do is to there's going to be, have to be force involved. It doesn't have to be primarily U.S. force. It, it can be Venezuelan forces. But there's enough young Venezuelans out there who are desperate to change the course of their country who would be willing to take the lead on this kind of thing. And I mean, you know, Trump sort of models him himself on Ronald Reagan in the sense that he was the, you know, Reagan used force less than probably any president in modern times followed a policy of peace through strength. But even Reagan, you know, he supported the Contra operations in Nicaragua. He supported, uh, you know, freedom fighters throughout uh, Latin America. I don't know why we shouldn't go back to that kind of model. I think the problem for us is that we haven't been able to figure out who the good guy freedom fighters are. We put a lot of hope in Guaido, and frankly, he's You been, make them. You create them. He's been pretty feckless. It's hard. It's hard, and the United States hasn't been in the business of doing this for a long time. You know I agree with you. This is, you know, my view is that if we people... We did it in Syria. We did it in Syria, but we had a group, we had the Kurds. Maybe we could bring yeah. the Kurds to Venezuela because, yeah. frankly, they were outstanding. Yes. But, but I'm sure it's they'd not... love to leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about we take you to an oil rich country and uh, it's very, yes. very, very far away from ISIS yeah. <laughs> and Turkey? <laughs> and you it's, buy... <laughs> it's a total bank shot. I mean, look, the Iranians are there, the Chinese are there, the Russians. Why not the Kurds? Exactly. No, no, listen, I mean, it's not, it's, it's actually not the craziest idea. Those kinds of things have happened historically. I think the challenge if, for us if it is. Happens, if a Kurdish force lands in Venezuela, it, I just want the record to show the first time it was mentioned was on this podcast. It'll be called the Tyson invasion. <laughs> Fear not. <laughs> but I digress. I think that the challenge for us is is the one that both Roger and Mary Anastasia O'Grady in the in the Wall Street Journal laid out, and that is that we need to be pretty focused to have this happen. One of the reasons why the Reagan doctrine was successful in supporting opposition against Soviet proxies in places like Angola and Nicaragua and El Salvador and elsewhere is because you had a whole-of-government approach. You had the CIA, you had the State Department, you had the Defense Department, you had the White House. You had all of those guys engaged. It's been a long time since we brought a whole-of-government effort to almost anything, including the coronavirus. Part two of the problem there, I think, is that we underestimate our enemy. You know, people are used to thinking of Cuba as some craptastic little country, you know, down there where the biggest fight we can have is whether Americans should go on vacation and support the communist regime there or not. And the reality is that just as hapless as they may appear, Cuban intelligence is very capable. Yes. And they are everywhere. They've had 60 years to infiltrate pretty much every government they've wanted to, and they've done that very, very effectively. And I don't think we're enough on our game at this point to actually get this done. I, th I think we need to get on our game because it's important. 
we are also in a situation that's very similar to the Reagan era. So Ronald Reagan came into power after the night after the uh, the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam, when there was absolutely no appetite for America to go invading other countries and overthrowing regimes, and yet we faced challenges, you know, security challenges that we needed to address. And he came up with this innovative doctrine, which we call the Reagan Doctrine, which is that we'll support freedom fighters in other countries. We'll provide them with assistance. We'll provide them with weapons. We'll provide them with training. We'll provide them with intelligence and let them liberate their own countries. I don't see why President Trump shouldn't adopt the exact same situation now. America's tired of wars, as he said, after Iraq, after Afghanistan, after all these things. No appetite for going and invading countries. Let's help find some Venezuelans. And, for, and But they're not just going to appear on our doorstep. We need, a, as you say, a whole-of-government approach to recruit the right people, to find the right people. And let's get rid of this guy. Hey, hey man, I'd love to see us do it. He represents a real threat, and I don't think we take it seriously enough. And all you need to do is look at the drugs that are coming into this country. All you need to do is look at the amount of money that is washing around in Caracas to understand that this is an enormously serious problem that we ought to be dealing with. We've talked about how, you know, and we're going to have a podcast on this soon, about how the deaths of despair uh, that are going to come from this COVID lockdown, right? The virus came from China. The drugs that are going to fuel the deaths of despair are coming through the Venezuelan corrupt regime. And uh, they're both threats to this country, and we need to address both of them. Well, amen to that. We've decided what the policy should be. Now it's up to all of our listeners to Go execute. ensure this gets executed. <laughs> Onward. Exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll be holding your code all the way. Thanks, guys, for listening. Stay safe. Have a cocktail for us. Cheers. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehellataei.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.